that digs into the unusual, unorthodox, and downright unsettling beliefs out of the depths of the internet and the heights of paranoia. I'm your host, Dylan, and with me is the Zionist oh, Brent. Man. Spoiler. Oh, Spoiler yeah, there. I mean, and, was uh, there really... I'm not Zionist, but... Ooh, Where am I? Uh, I think Find to, out in this episode. No. I think to Bill Gale, everyone to the left of Mussolini is a Zionist. I yeah, think just I automatically, think so. you know, there's lots of debate about, you know, what that word actually means. But right. uh, for Bill Gale, we're all Zionists and, you know, we should just admit it. True. Um, but yeah, really, there's no other adjective to use yeah, uh, to conclude uh, this series. So uh, two uh, quick announcements. First, uh, this is going to be the last episode for a while. We're going to have a outtakes episode for our patrons, and then we will be going dark in July. You can always reach out to us via email or via discord. I'm usually hanging around the discord server uh, and Brent is as well. So if you want to chat with us, you could definitely do it there. But we won't have any episodes until August. And we will, however, be ending with a live stream on July 3rd. That will be 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And lastly, this is something I actually have forgot to share on the podcast. We tend not to share kind of reviews that we get uh, through iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Mm. And by the way, we all appreciate all the reviews we've gotten so far. That's so Nice. It helps the podcast. It kind of it boosts our name out there, but it's also just it warms my heart every time I read them. And this one in particular, I just felt I needed to share with everybody. Uh, So this is the review. Also, a five star review. Let's be clear uh, (laughs) from Laurel Eliza. And it goes as follows. When I started listening, I thought I wouldn't be able to stand the banter style they have. (laughs) But a few episodes in, I found myself absolutely falling in love with this podcast. What I thought would age obnoxiously actually became super lovable favorite pod. Well, uh, we so thank great. you. You are our yeah, favorite uh, reviewer. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm going to have to say that. I love all the reviewers, but this one really got my heart because, I mean, let's be honest. We are obnoxious. <laughs> I mean, that's just objectively true. You know, we just have yeah, to admit that. The so fact. the fact that somebody somehow is able to perceive us as not obnoxious <laughs> is definitely a yeah, plus. And become lovable. So good. Yeah, super. Super lovable. Okay, so what is it? What is it we're talking about today, Dylan? Well, uh, Zionist Brent, what we <laughs> are talking about today is the Posse Commentatus, and this is our fourth and final part of this saga <laughs> that began with one William Potter Gale and will end with one William Potter Gale. <laughs> but we As have it we exactly, but we have two stories to get to first. And this first story also involves messing with farmers. And it was just yet another story. This is the kind of event that really brought the hammer down in terms of the federal government. Because for a while, some like FBI offices were, you know, they were getting kind of bored of the posse commentatus. They didn't think they were that big of a deal. And Mm -hmm. then this event kind of said, oh, maybe uh, they are uh, dangerous lunatics. (laughs) So let's begin at the top. While Thomas Stockheimer and Francis Ur Gillings were early innovators 
In fulfilling Bill Gale's violent fantasies, it wasn't until a bizarre incident on August 27, 1976, that the violent nature of the Posse Comitatus was cemented in the minds of the public and law enforcement. Sachihiko, or Sach Mikami, and his brother Daniel purchased over 8,000 acres in Umatilla County, Oregon. By 1974, their land had been converted into a highly valuable wheat and potato farm. Ah. And I take it, this is going to be more to Brent's liking than yeah. all that tomato nonsense we were it's talking a, about in the last episode. Yeah, exactly. Get out of here with your elitist heirloom tomato shit. <laughs> Actually, though, I have to say, potatoes can also be elitist. Mm-hmm. Get mm-hmm. those fancy ass fingerlings out of my fucking face. Oh, I don't want to oh, see yeah. them. Also, different uh, colors. Let's not, dainty. Let's not, let's not forget about those purple potatoes either. They're, you're not oh, yeah. fooling me. What is this Venusian yeah. produce? Ah, get that out of here. Full of nutrition. Out of Ugh, get out of here. <sighs> Disgusting. Nutrition is a hoax. It was at this point that Satch Mikami received a bizarre call from one Everett Thorin, who informed Satch that he owed him rent since his farm was on property owned by Thorin. Satch, more confused than anything, since he had owned the land for a number of years now and bought it fair and square, directed Thorin to contact his lawyer. What Thorin was on about was a long-running dispute over land supposedly belonging to one J.T. Hoskins, who was a, a pioneer sheep man, mm. I believe he was described by Levitas, which is pretty cool. Sheep man. <laughs> half man, half sheep, I guess. <laughs> or maybe he just worked with sheep either way. Yeah. Hoskins' son, Bill, claimed that you know his father owned all this land that had been somehow taken from him. It's very confusing. Mm. But either way, he believed that this land was actually his. And he asked Thorin for help to get this land back, uh, which is why, you know, Satch Mikami got this bizarre phone call. So the reason Bill asked Thorin to help him here is because, you know, Thorin wasn't a lawyer, oh. but he did take a year of law school night classes before dropping out. You know, so that should mean something. Yeah, he should get a, He deserves to get an honorary degree for that. I think. Yeah, honorary degree fully. And along with the Mikami brothers. Thorin also told neighboring farmers they were also his tenants and thus owed him rent. Oh, well. He even hired a surveyor who had to trespass on other people's land, which got him arrested. So this approach to handling the, the situation wasn't very productive. But in a coincidence that worked out well for everyone involved, as we're, we're definitely going to find out. 1974 also saw the formation of the Umatilla County Posse Comitatus by Samuel Mann Porter. While some, including Levitas, called him a, quote, local right-wing activist, the state police had a different nickname for Porter, calling him mentally disturbed. Oh. So slightly different uh, description. <laughs> they thought he was mentally disturbed because instead of Porter thinking that people on welfare did drugs and solicited sex workers, mm-hmm. it was the welfare workers who were on drugs and soliciting sex workers. Okay. So that is why he went from normal but racist and wrong to perhaps mentally, mentally ill. So mentally disturbed or not, though, after he set up the posse, Porter sent a totally sane telegram to the governor warning the posse was coming to arrest him. Hell yeah, he's going the safe route of communication. If I, if we remember from our dangers of 5G episode, the telegram is what, 1G, I think. Yeah, 1G. Definitely so, you're not going to get yeah. the uh, the EMG interference giving you brain cancer. Yes. And Porter, I think, I think he can't, he doesn't have much, he doesn't have enough to lose. Yeah. So I definitely think he wants to avoid 5G at all costs. Oh yeah. But it was another posseman, Thomas R. Braun, 
who set the posse's sights even higher, saying this. The aim of the posse is to apprehend all public officials possible, elected and appointed, who receive and execute unconstitutional directives, charge them with violations of their oaths of office, and have them prosecuted. So we, are we, uh, okay, have them prosecuted. Are we talking hang them by the neck until dead? High noon situation prosecuted here? Brent, 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 that's the part that we don't, we don't say out loud. Oh, shit. Oh, that's right. Okay. We don't put that in the press release. (laughs) (laughs) That's bad PR. That's true. And who should join the Umatilla County Posse Comitatus in October 1975, but one Everett Thorin, Uh who eventually turned the posse on the Mikamis. His first plan was to simply just steal the wheat. Excuse me, take Oh, okay. It wouldn't Thank be stealing because it's his. Thorin's first target was Jack Zabransky, one of the Makami's neighbors. Thorin hired a guy to harvest the grain, but a state trooper told them they would be arrested for trespassing, and so the cut grain was stored under Zabransky's name. Clearly, clearly, something more drastic would be required. Yeah, clearly. The problem, Thorin realized, was that the Mikamis had what he called a, quote, claim of adverse possession. To nullify this, Thorne would have to occupy the property for at least a day, and by some kind of sovereign sorcery, <laughs> ownership would be transferred to Thorne. Holy shit, Thorne is also the first Occupy activist, too. Yeah. So he's, uh, <laughs> exactly. taking a, he's, he's the beginning. This is yeah. mine now. That's how it works. You just <laughs> you sit down somewhere and you own it. Yep. You just got to sit there long enough. <laughs> it's at least a day, 24 yep. hours. By Occupy Wall Street now owns Wall Street. Sadly, the Umatilla County Posse was not established enough to mount such a campaign. So Thorne called in the big guns, the Tomato Field Incidenters themselves, the San Joaquin County Posse. Yeah. If we'll remember, this is uh, Francis Er Gillings, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, getting his son out there, almost getting murdered by the police. (laughs) That's that's these folks, these geniuses. George Hill, who was then the chairman of the San Joaquin County Posse, agreed to help Thorin because this was, after all, in the name of defending property rights. Hill recruited four others, Robert David Cummings, Donald Ray Cooper, Vernon Edward Isig, and Farrell Anthony Griggs, also known as George Hill in the three-name game. Come on, y'all. Yeah, it's a Disney Channel movie right there. On August 25th, 1976, George Hill and the three-name gang, they drove through the night to Portland, where they discussed their plan of attack with Thorin. While they were gathering supplies and making homemade wooden clubs, they discovered that Thorin actually wouldn't be in town when the shit went down because he would be attending his son's wedding rehearsal. Oh, how convenient. Or, quote-unquote, attending his son's wedding rehearsal. This mm. is, as we're going to find out, this quote is Quote-unquote, son. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Maybe. <laughs> oh, oh. Thorin, though, managed to, you know, despite this uh, hiccup, he managed to convince them to go along with the plan for a promised thousand bucks each. I would have just went and paid them wheat and potatoes, personally. Yeah, I mean, it okay. seems that that's what they're interested in. I yeah. mean, you know, all these folks seem they're really interested in kind of the farming community. Just give them food. Let's barter. Finally, at 1 a.m. on August 27th, they began the five-hour drive to Umatilla County in order to reach the Mikami farm before dawn. As all good cases of trespassing disguised as rightful reclamations of property begin, the seizure of the Mikami farm began with a sign written on a pizza box that said, no trespassing Hoskins estate. One of the posse men, Donald Goodwill, 
hung the sign on a utility pole next to the entrance and stood guard wearing a blue suit and sporting both a clipboard and a mean Doberman pincher. Oh, so was the guard wearing the Doberman pincher? That is even that's even more intimidating. Jesus. No, no. I uh, yeah, I was. uh, That was a metaphorical sporting of the uh, Doberman (laughs) pincher. Yeah. Also, Uh, I do not believe he was wearing it. Also, you know, Donald at first hung the sign backwards and just said Pizza Hut for a while until he noticed <laughs> it and had to climb back up the pole and flip it around. Like, oh, oh man, what am I doing? Can you imagine that? Like you're going to work, you know, you, you know, you're working, you're a farmhand, you know, it's brutal work. And then <laughs> yeah. you go and then you see, holy shit, we're getting Pizza Hut <laughs> to eat while we're working. That is the best day ever. <laughs> and then turns out worst day ever, as we're going to find <laughs> out. Damn, that is. That is a turn of (laughs) fortune. Wow. If there ever was one. Horrible. Because as farm workers began arriving for their shifts, which they were beginning to, you know, around this time, it wasn't Goodwill who scared them off, but Robert Cummings, described by Levitas as, quote, huge, threatening, and disheveled. In what must have been the strangest encounter any employee has ever had, Cummings told the workers in the potato storage sheds that it was they who were trespassing and that failure to leave would earn them a citizen's arrest. Further, Cummings said, quote, the cops might come and there might be some shooting. So there's that as well. (laughs) At this point, after 6 a.m., Satch Mikami himself arrived to find Goodwill and Cummings blocking the entrance. Their interaction was as fruitful as you can imagine. And this is taken in full from the Levitas book. What's going on here? Mikami demanded. We're taking possession of this property, and if you try to enter, you'll be trespassing and we'll make a citizen's arrest on you, Cummings replied. Well, I own the property, and I have business to do, so I'm going in anyway, said Mikami as he started to pull his pickup around Goodwill's wagon. But Cummings stepped forward and put his foot on the truck's fender. You're not coming in. The rifle owners are repossessing the property. Mikami took stock of Cummings' six-foot, eight-inch frame as well as the guns and clubs. He saw Goodwill's dogs straining at their chains, realizing the posse med business. He put the truck in reverse. And that's probably smart. That was the right decision, by the way. Yes, it was. So at this point, Satch had two goals. Warn his employees not to come anywhere near the farm and to call the police. (laughs) As he was doing this, as he was kind of, you know, heading back to the kind of main intersection, he encountered his foreman, Harvey Furukawa, and his wife, Debbie. Satch asked them to sneak around back to get a sense of what the hell was going on. (laughs) Furukawa successfully snuck in and got a peek at what the busy posse men were up to. Quote, they scared off more Miyakami workers, cut telephone lines, disconnected the electricity and removed the CB radio antenna from the roof of the scale house. They also moved Goodwill station wagon into one of the potato sheds and replaced it with a barricade of heavy metal pipes. Meanwhile, George Hill was documenting the assault and vandalism with his Nikon Super 8 movie camera. <laughs> was he making an experimental art film, I guess? I don't yeah, know. I think the most experimental. <laughs> also, I have, I have to say that this this is, you know, not the way that you take over something. We know that you, whenever you take over something like the Bundys do, you always shit everywhere. You yeah. Make sure and cover that with rat feces and your own feces. See, that is the true. Show that you're there. That is the true sign of ownership. Yeah. Is whatever you shit on, you own. That's the law. That's the Christian common law. That's true. That is really what we all should be abiding. At around 8 a.m., State Patrol Sergeant Amos Rasmussen arrived at the barricaded entrance 
He asked Isig who was in charge, and Isig informed Rasmussen that he was, quote, the chief of security. That's a, that's, that's a name for it. Rasmussen's first order of business was to eliminate the possibility of a hostage situation. So he convinced Goodwill and Isig to let him escort the Furukawas and other workers off the premises. As he did so, the posse made extended a job offer oh. to their former <laughs> prisoners, saying, quote, We'd like to have you work for us as soon as we're all lined up here. We'll even think about giving you a pay raise, you know? You'll have real good bosses, and you're just welcome anytime. It struck Debbie Furukawa as completely bizarre. Earlier that morning, she had been so scared she had vomited. Now the men who had terrorized her were offering her a job. Man, we really were impressed by your vomiting skills. We'd like you to come vomit for us for more money. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, possible. By, by any chance, could you vomit on command? That's where the real money is. You know, we could really use you here at uh, at uh, the uh, the Posse Vomitorium. Uh, we need uh, we need good vomiters like you, oh, good, yeah. strong vomiters. None of this watery shit. We need some chunks in there. And speaking of vomiting, just wait, it's coming. Everyone will be vomiting oh, that's, actually that's, when they listen to this Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's true. Yeah, spoiler alert. Uh, vomiting <laughs> might still happen, by the way. So with any potential hostage situation averted, Rasmussen switched to figuring out why the hell these losers were trespassing. Isig's explanation probably didn't help all that much. Quote, We are on the property legally and everyone else is trespassing. We are going to hold the property at all costs until Everett Thorin tells us to leave. Realizing these folks were both armed and totally delusional, Rasmussen made the sensible decision to tell a fellow officer to gather several long-range rifles, flak vests, radios, and binoculars. With the proper preparations made, Rasmussen began negotiations. And this is also taken at length from the Levitas book. What will it take to convince you to leave the area and give up? Rasmussen asked. The only order we'll obey is from one from a federal court in Portland or one from Everett Thorin, Isig replied. Well, I don't think that's going to be forthcoming. Is there anything else that will cause you to give up? Rasmussen asked. If we were met with an overwhelming force, Isig replied. <laughs> well... What would you consider that to be? <laughs> let's quantify it. Yeah, yeah, let's yeah, let's get into that. Let's do some conceptual analysis here. <laughs> when I was in the service in Korea, I was part of what was known as the Frozen Chosen, and the odds were three hundred to one, and we got out. Isig blustered. Okay, so overwhelming force is exactly three hundred and one to one. Then, got yeah, it. exactly. That's, that's kind of that's yeah. That's the that. implicit claim there is that you got to get past that lip. But while Isig was able to bluster and was able to, you know, put on a good show, hmm. Goodwill was clearly not as confident uh, with those odds. So Goodwill suggested Rasmussen let him make a phone call to Everett Thorin to straighten all this out. Goodwill, of course, couldn't call from the farm because the posse had cut all the phone lines, as we mentioned earlier. Ah, oh, telegram time. Telegram. I see. I don't Where'd think they could do the telegram either because oh. they got the. They don't have the phone lines. Yeah, maybe, uh, yeah. maybe a uh, messenger pigeon. Yeah. Maybe we could do a messenger pigeon situation. So Rasmussen agreed. Rasmussen let uh, Goodwill uh, reach a phone. Sadly, he couldn't reach Thorin, uh, who, as you will recall, was at his son's wedding rehearsal in Klamath Falls again, or at least he said he was again. There's some contention about this. Isak said that if they could talk to an FBI agent and get access to the media, he and the posse would surrender. Rasmussen gave a deadline of 430 p.m. To prevent the standoff dragging into the night. Yeah, 4.30 p.m. is the early bird standoff special, I think. Yeah, exactly. Everyone would still be able to go to Golden Corral by 5 p.m. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I exactly. mean, that's really that's, that's what we're that's all like trying to do here. That's the most important thing. Yeah, we're trying to get a good snack in. Make a good deal. 
Rasmussen and two dozen other officers approached the farm on foot and in 13 patrol cars. Despite their flak vests and riot helmets, Rasmussen knew the posse could get the jump on them, and they were at a considerable disadvantage. But, thankfully, the posse men put down their arms and were arrested without a shot being fired. Plus, as Rasmussen promised, Isak and Goodwill were able to talk to those reporters, and they had a lot of interesting things to say. Quote, These people have been fighting 23 years, the heirs of the Hoskins estate, to regain the land stolen and swindled by judges right here in the county, Isig announced. Goodwill, who shared the back seat with his German shepherd, also made a statement. We proved our point. We took control of the property, and possession is nine-tenths of the law. (laughs) This is kind of, this is going with that sovereign sorcery argument. Just like, look, if you're just, if you're on it, then it's nine-tenths yours, I guess. That's just the law. On September 7th, the seven possumen were indicted for burglary and riot. George Hill was asked if he understood the charges, and his reply was simply, quote, I understand the charges are garbage. Oh. I should also note here that uh, these folks, so we had the uh, the tomato field incident. These folks were known as the Potato Shed Seven. Oh, yeah. It's pretty like good. It. It's a pretty good name. For his part, Vern Isig was eventually convicted. His sentence? A $500 fine. in court fees, three concurrent five-month jail terms, and two concurrent five-year terms of probation. The others received similar sentences, which Mm. seems a little light to me, I have to say. And a forcible gluten-free diet. Yeah, that's that's the worst. That is the, that's a crime against humanity. (laughs) Everett Thorin got, himself, got three terms of 30 days. Like Stockheimer, this didn't quell his thirst for legal illegality, as you might call it. (laughs) On January 30th, 1994, about 20 years later, a group of paid shitheads kind of working under Thorin threatened the life of Karen Matthews, the elected clerk recorder of Stanislaw County. After a year long manhunt, Thorin was finally tracked down, but he choked to death on his dinner days before he could be indicted. The gluten finally killed him. Oh, man, I hope I hope it was just a big French (laughs) loaf. Just just couldn't deal with it. All right. So that is that is the end of that saga. And we didn't there's a lot, you know, there's a lot more details about ultimately that's what really kind of reopened the FBI's investigation of the posse, because before that they were kind of like winding it down. But this combined with the tomato field incident made them realize, okay, these folks mean business. Yeah. But the armed and delusional armed and delusional. It's not a good combo. (laughs) And we are going to end this episode by going back to our good friend, Bill Gale. But first, we have to tell you about a man who turned his posse comitatus and Christian identity beliefs into a full-blown cult, Mike Ryan. And we will explicitly warn you when it actually happens, but we want to just kind of like pre-warn you that this section gets rough. Probably the roughest thing we've ever covered. Oh, yeah. Again, I, so. I we will very explicitly warn you when we get into that stuff. We're not getting into there immediately, but we want to, you know, if you're like driving and you, you know, you wouldn't be able to like, say, maybe pause the podcast yeah. for 10 minutes. You might want to pull over if you uh, don't want to <laughs> hear anything that's really fucking disgusting. Exactly. Just want to let everyone know. But for now, this is the not rough stuff. The, the non-rough parts of the Mike Ryan story. 
Ryan was introduced to posse beliefs in the early 80s, and by 1984, he was prepared for an all-out race war. And like Francis Earl Gillings, he made sure to get his son involved. Quote, Ryan gave his teenage son Dennis an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle, telling him that the weapon would be needed in the upcoming war against the Jews and the forces of Satan. Previously, the boy had enjoyed baseball and saxophone. Now he was focused, like his father, on the coming apocalypse. Yeah, you know, playing sports, say what you want about sports, but playing sports and music are always a much healthier, rewarding pastime than doing target practice with your dad for some made-up future tragedy about the satanic Jews or whatever the fuck it yeah, is. Yeah, because I think the target practice on its own can be fine. That could be a yeah, healthy that's fine. activity. That's actually kind of a sport, really. Exactly. It's the whole... Uh, we're gonna have to shoot Jews part. Yes, that's when that part of it perhaps not as healthy. That's I'm gonna that's my maybe a controversial stance, but uh, that's mine. And all of these totally true beliefs led to June of 1984 when Ryan and his followers, which would be around 21 people at the peak, moved mm-hmm. to a farm in Rulo, Nebraska. And Nebraska, it's Rulo is like right at the southeast corner of Nebraska. So it's like right by Kansas and Missouri. It's like right mm. on the, the corner there. And it's a it's a very small town. I think it's uh, less than 200 people, wow. if I'm not mistaken. And if you really want to know how small it is, Google it. It's a R-U-L-O. And if you Google it, the first person who comes up is Mike Ryan. So <laughs> like he's the star. He's the star of this town. Uh, let's put it that way. In typical Christian identity fashion, the Ryanites believed that they were the real Israelites. We've seen that before. And because of this, they didn't eat pork. Now, what Ryan added to the mix was the claim that he himself directly knew the will of Yahweh and convinced his followers of this via something called the arm test, which maybe you've heard of this, Brent. This is something I have never heard of. I've never heard of this. This is how it works. And I don't fully understand what it actually means. So... Someone would hold out their hand and Ryan would push down on their wrist while asking God a question. If the person's arm went down, that means God said no. But if it held steady or went up, God said yes. And as Levitas notes, quote, it was a simple parlor trick. But to those who believed it was totally convincing. I mean, to me, this whole thing seems kind of flawed. So if you really want God to approve something, you already you know, you just all you have to do is just pick someone, some tiny dude with like frail arms and push down. Yeah, it all depends on like who's stronger than who. And I, I guess I don't really understand this, this parlor trick. Yeah, you know, you know who couldn't, you know, who definitely couldn't use this parlor trick. Sylvester Stallone. Oh, true. He'd be shattering all kinds of arms. Yeah, I mean, it would just be like, no, 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 <laughs> no. God won't let you do anything in the Sylvester Stallone cult. And with these kind of, you know, parlor tricks, uh, you know, it was part of Ryan's act. He was quite the charismatic cult leader. And as we'll see, he was quite adept at destroying people's lives in more ways than one. For example, Cheryl Gibson became enthralled by Ryan's anti-communist readings of Revelation, because that's ultimately what the apocalypse is, is communist invasion. And she was so enamored that she left her husband of 11 years with their five children to live on the Rouleau compound, filing for divorce two weeks later. His story, Charles Gibson, is a part of you know the downfall of this group. We're not going to get into that, so we're not really going to get into that in this episode. That kind of deserves, honestly, an episode of its own. But yeah, we just want to focus on, on the bad stuff. 
one of the people who got the brunt of the life-destroying element of Mike Ryan's cult was Ryan Stice. Stice and his wife were farmers, and they were crushed by the farm crisis. To save money, they canceled their health insurance, but one month after they canceled it, uh, Stice's wife, Sandra, was diagnosed with cancer. Mm. The emotional turmoil of his wife's disease combined with their economic burdens led Stice to posse seminars where alternative medicine was taught alongside alternative law. Stice even consulted with a posse doctor for his wife, but unfortunately she died on April 1983. Like many others wandering in the wilderness of grief and poverty, Stice dug further into the posse and Christian identity and eventually found his way to Rulo and Ryan's cult. And this is where um, it starts getting dark. Yeah. Uh, This is, uh, yeah, it's not going to be very good for a little bit. Stice was eventually married, quote unquote, by Mike Ryan to Cheryl Gibson's 16-year-old sister, Lisa, and she eventually got pregnant. Although Ryan is the one who instigated this whole thing, Ryan was still pissed that Lisa was pregnant out of jealousy. So he, quote, annulled the marriage, declared Lisa was now his wife, and further declared that Stice was now a, quote, slave. Jesus. Ryan also heaped abuse on Stice's young son, Luke, and Stice would himself participate in the abuse. Ryan called him mongrel and Satan's child and wrote 666 in red marker on Luke's forehead. Worse, he was subjected to beatings, whippings, plunging his head under cold water, forcing him to exercise to the point of exhaustion, and rolling him in the snow. Stice complied with it all until Ryan's son, Dennis, threatened to shoot Stice. And it was at that point that he fled the farm without his three children. But then he came back one week later. And this is where it gets really dark, like really dark. So, again, I want to warn everyone. This is nasty stuff. To prevent another escape attempt, Stice was chained to the porch when he went to sleep. He was also ordered to sexually abuse Luke, which he did. Stice and another Ryanite in bad standing, James Thim, were ordered to sodomize one another. Finally, the logical conclusion to all this abuse unfolded in March 1985, when Ryan assaulted Luke, breaking his neck and killing him. He then forced Stice to dig his own son's grave. After he did so, Stice finally escaped for a second time. Despite all of this, he did not go to the authorities and did not talk about any of this until he became a paid FBI informant several months later. Thim himself was not so lucky, and there is really no way to paraphrase this, so I'm just going to read in full from Levitas's book. Quote, Shortly before Stice managed his second escape, Thim was shot in the face by Ryan's teenage son, Dennis. The bullet entered Thim's left cheek and exited near his right eye, but he miraculously survived the wound only to die several weeks later after enduring gruesome torture. Accused of doubting the existence of Yahweh, he was chained to a farrowing crate in the hogshed in order to have sex with a goat. The next day, Ryan, Dennis, and the other men, Timothy Haverkamp, James Haverkamp, and David Andreas, raped him repeatedly with a shovel handle coated with axle grease, tearing his bowel. I ought to shove this thing up your heart, Ryan growled. The men also whipped them hundreds of times. The brutality continued the following day until Ryan ordered the men to shoot Thim's fingertips with a 22 caliber pistol. 
He then kicked Them in the arm, breaking it. On the fourth day, both of Them's legs were broken and the skin was flayed from his legs. His torment finally ended when Mike Ryan kicked him in the head and stomped on his chest, crushing it. Things will go better now, he announced. Ryan then ordered Timothy Haverkamp to shoot Them's corpse in the head before burying him, providing a rather unconvincing explanation, saying, quote, That way, if the body is accidentally exhumed, say 100 or 200 years from now, it will look like he was executed. Ryan finally appeared in court on August 21st, 1985, the bodies of Luke Stice and James Thim discovered four days earlier. He was sentenced to death for the murder of James Thim and died on death row of natural causes on May 24th, 2015. Jesus. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, pretty that's rough. in the darkest. Uh, didn't like saying it, but I <sighs> think uh, we need to understand where this stuff goes. Yeah, uh, exactly. This isn't just uh, goofy stuff. No, uh, when It's not just LARPing. Yeah, it uh, when this is the direction it turns. And because that's so heavy, we had to end. We couldn't end the episode with that. We have to end with the last hurrah and then death of Bill Gale. The big papa is coming back. We got to get back to Bill Gale. What's he doing? Because we're ending the series where it began. Bill Gale, he was the first and he's going to be the last. Uh, specifically his arrest on October 23rd, 1986. Mm. He and seven other men were charged with conspiracy, attempting to interfere with federal tax laws, and mailing death threats to the IRS. He awaited trial for four months in a Las Vegas jail. Oh, nice. So he, he was able to play uh, slots for four months then, because every, everything in uh, Vegas has um, gambling. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, Hospitals, gas stations, jails. Although, I mean, that's a little bit inaccurate. I think it was probably a blackjack table in the cell. Oh, true. Right? So I don't think it was just the slots. Actually, I just assume Las Vegas jail is just like a small ripoff of like other real cities' um, jails, just like, you know, New York, New York, and Paris. It's just like... <laughs> <laughs> Like, oh, this is a real jail, I swear. Please. Oh, my God. So, yeah, it's like a fake Alcatraz. Yeah. That's what the jail looks like. Oh, my God. <laughs> Bill Gale's latest trouble began with his last foray into posse activities, the Committee of the States, which Gale founded in 1982. Because one thing that should be mentioned, the reason Gale has kind of died down a little bit in the series is that he was doing the posse thing, but mm -hmm. you know, Mike beach got the handle on it and he kind of got the credit. And so Bill Gale kind of went back more into the Christian identity stuff. That was kind mm -hmm. of uh, where he decided to put his energy. And it was only towards the end where he's like, you know what? Let's give it one last go. Let's get, let's get this going. One of the favorite activities of the committee of the States was sending what they called constructive notices mm -hmm. to tax collectors. Uh, the layman among us might call it by a different name, death threat. Oh. So a slightly different understanding. <laughs> a little different. Yeah, one person they targeted was black Nevada judge Earl White, whom one of the co-conspirators suggested be hung to the white people they mailed death threats to. They left the form of death penalty unstated. Oh, well, that's nice. See, Vague even, death penalty. Yeah, even in death threats, white privilege. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> it expands everywhere. They also informed an IRS supervisor that, quote, the unlawful income tax was invented by the son of Jew rabbi Moses Mordecai Levy, also known as Karl Marx. Karl spelled with a C, by the way, the author of the Communist Manifesto. A copy of the latter document was thoughtfully enclosed. And the quote continues. Communism is the avowed enemy of this Christian constitutional republic. 
and any person who supports it is herein declared to be a traitor, committee members proclaimed. So, as stated before, uh, Gale started the Committee of the States in 1982, specifically September 6th, 1982, from his pulpit at the Ministry of Christ Church. First, he detailed the problems facing the U.S. Why did we need a new organization? Well, it's because, quote, Congress had unlawfully delegated power to the Federal Reserve, treasonously appropriated money toward the support of alien and foreign governments, and unconstitutionally ordered American troops into battle on behalf of the international Jewish banking conspiracy. You know, it's it's good. You know, we, we went through that dark part and we get to lighten it up here, but it's good that we wrap up, and it's fitting that we wrap up this uh, four-part series where it all started, wholehearted anti-Semitism. It's just... Oh, yeah. Bring it back. Yeah, when wholehearted anti-Semitism is the light part of the episode, something has gone terribly oh, wrong. <laughs> now, so those, so those are the problems. Those are the problems we're facing. But we can't be problem oriented. We have to be solution oriented. Yes. So, what was Bill Gale's solution to these problems? Well, members of Congress are employees on the public payroll. Therefore, they are subject to dismissal and removal from office and replacement by a committee of the states as provided for in Article 5 of the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. This removal from office and replacement by a committee of the states is hereby recommended and authorized. <laughs> and in case you missed it, yes, the Articles of Confederation um, still in effect. I'm not sure if you knew that, Brent, but that's <laughs> definitely true. That, uh, yeah, the we I thought the Constitution kind of overrid that. No, both. They're both I still so. hanging on. I thought so. Yeah, but uh, no, you, you're wrong. The official founding, though, the, the official founding convention of the Committee of the States mm. occurred on Gale's uh, Manasseh Ranch on July 4th, 1984. Very appropriate for multiple reasons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was there that they and 42 others signed the following very long and silly declaration. Quote, they proclaim themselves the lords and masters of this self-governing republic known as the United States of America and ordered the dissolution of Congress. They charged that government officials had misappropriated public funds to support alien and foreign governments, unlawfully delegated powers to the Federal Reserve, and committed troops to acts of war on foreign soil without a formal constitutional declaration of war. That part's actually kind of true. Public servants all have committed acts of sedition. And are as insolent as those of the Roman government in the days of the Apostle Paul, asserted the group's manifesto. The July 1984 declaration also delivered a stern ultimatum. All members of Congress who did not immediately resign will be put on trial by the Committee of the States. And like the constructive notices that committee members would later mail to IRS agents and the Nevada judge. The declaration stated that any attempt to interfere with the committee would result in death. In addition to claiming the authority of the United States Congress for themselves, Gale's followers were equally brazen in demanding additional rights and remedies. A 15-point declaration of alteration and reform summarily announced the repeal of all international debts and obligations, the abolition of all departments of government not functioning in pursuance of the Constitution, an end of the income tax, and the creation of a national bank, which is kind of a weird one. Yeah. The committee accused Congress of sedition and arrogantly decreed that it would now assume all functions of the Department of Justice and the Department of Defense. Wow, quite a declaration. That is quite a declaration. <laughs> and you would think, if I was Bill Gale, I want to be a part of that. I want to sign that document. Mm -hmm. That document fucking rules. <laughs> but, but Bill Gale did not sign this declaration, despite how good it is. So why? Why wouldn't Bill Gale... It's like, Bill, you're bringing us all here. Maybe you should sign it. His argument was that the Articles of Confederation, again, still in effect, 
didn't allow retired military officers from serving as delegates to the government. Uh So, you know, clearly he couldn't sign this declaration. And as Levitas notes, quote, it was a self-serving and specious argument, but so was most of what Gail said. (laughs) So I think I think he's totally right there. Yeah. But despite not signing this declaration, Bill Gale, he still signed a lot of other incriminating documents, good, and many good. of them made their way into the briefcases of George R. or Mike <laughs> McRae and Brother Pat, who were themselves arrested on misdemeanor traffic violations. The briefcase included, quote, letters from Bill Gale, copies of threatening constructive notices, and application forms for identity meetings in Mariposa. The police made copies of the paperwork and passed them along to the IRS, who then gave the material to federal prosecutors. The documents made up a large portion of the 450 exhibits that the U.S. attorney planned to submit at Bill Gale's trial, which began in Las Vegas on September 15th, 1987. But before we get to the trial itself, we got to take a bit of a, a bit of a side tour here, a bit of a side quest here, because one man was enraged hmm. by the arrest of Bill Gale. And this man was the, quote, National Education Chairman of Committee of the States, David John Moran, and he decided the only way to deal with this arrest was to commit a string of armed robberies starting on December 1st. (laughs) Quote, The arrests of William P. Gale and others by the agents of Zog is the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, Moran wrote before he robbed a series of (laughs) liquor and convenience stores. Thus I, like the members of the Order, have declared war. What's up with all these right-wing looters? You know, I'm so sick of Antifa robbing and looting from their own neighborhoods, you know? I mean, come on. Yeah, it's really, this is not the way, gotta be peaceful. This is not the way to get change done. Exactly. Uh, Also, in case... I imagine many of our listeners are familiar, but uh, he's talking about the order. The order was a kind of basically a bank robbing gang in the 80s led by one Bob Matthews. Uh, the order, the name comes from the book, the Turner Diaries. That was the group in the Turner Diaries. So Bill Gale's arrest was the straw that broke the camel's back. No doubt. But the straw right before that straw, the penultimate straw that broke the camel's back, if you will was Moran's personal dealings with the Zionist-occupied government. Quote, Moran, 30, had renounced his social security number, his slave number, he called it, (laughs) and canceled his bank account in an effort to opt out of the system. But that had not deterred the collection efforts of the IRS. Somehow, that just doesn't work. You can't just uh, (laughs) close your bank account and be like, all right, I guess you don't have any money. But Moran was eventually caught and killed in a shootout with police On December 8th, exactly two years after Bob Matthews of the order himself was killed. And 13 days after that, the jury in Bill Gale's case, Bill Gale and his four co-defendants, the jury found them guilty on all counts. You might think they were found guilty because, frankly, it was obvious that they were guilty because of all the evidence. (laughs) But Gale's wife actually had a much more satisfying explanation. Quote, Roxanne Gale pointed out that both Gale's arrest in 1986 and his trial a year later had been held during Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. And coincidentally, the trial's verdict was read just hours before the beginnings of Yom Kippur. The Jews forgot to brag about the defendants being kidnapped by IRS SWAT teams one year ago during the Jewish New Year, she wrote in a letter to supporters. I guess it's called twice the fun for once the price. May Jesus Christ reward them on their timing, she sarcastically observed. What a nice woman. 
What a nice woman. And either way, Gail's sentencing occurred on January 15th, 1988. He was sentenced to three one-year concurrent terms in prison, five years probation, and a $5,000 fine. But Gail was freed on bail awaiting his appeal, and he died from emphysema on April 28th, 1988. So his fake liver problems didn't take him in the end. Interesting. It wasn't the fake liver problems. It was the very real lung problems that maybe he should have addressed instead. Uh, Maybe, you know, focus on general, focus on the real problems. And with the death of Bill Gale, we conclude our series on the posse commentatus. So, Brent, what did you learn in this series? What most stuck out to you? I, I do. I don't know. Looking. I mean, besides the extremely dark parts, I, I keep looking at this and thinking, why can't we make a sort of Hamilton Hamilton style musical with this? This would be beautiful, really. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, Maybe not. I don't know. But yeah, that's I mean, it's uh, one of no, those things know. where yeah. when you subtract the violence. Yeah, it's incredibly funny. It's so funny. Yes, these declarations. If people, if, pe- if there wasn't a chance for people to get murdered. Right. This is one of the funniest things of all time. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, this is a what four, four-parter. So we have the... Um, four-parter. Four-parter. Um, I, I didn't see, you know, Hitler apologist Mike Beach, uh, whatever, Silver Shirt. He kind of he kind of let it go last uh, was the last episode we discussed that he kind of yeah started talking yeah like slightly some sense in the end there so that was kind of nice but most of most of the people unfortunately did not but uh, no I yeah. don't know it was a, I also uh, fun I just series. I like I one of my favorite parts reading this was the line that where Levitas said that you know Mike Beach was basically a coward <laughs> one of my yes <laughs> the whole thing uh, and that's ultimately why he kind of uh, yeah got out of it yeah what did you uh, take from this so I mean there's two kind of two main things I, I took from all this uh, the first is that the overwhelming sense I get when I read these stories is is I see all of this as a an extreme violent reaction to powerlessness. Yeah. Yep. Where it seems that it's about taking over this system of governance, which one doesn't feel they have access to. um, Oftentimes, rightly, uh, frankly, people don't have the political power. It's kind of the basis of it, you know, and I don't want to gloss over other aspects of this, of course, and I don't want to, this isn't an excuse, but I think this is true of most extremists what you believe and what you can be convinced of is i think often a function of just your general well-being yeah and i think a lot of these folks that we cover you know a lot of the rank and file people especially are just so utterly powerless and are faced with these forces like the farm crisis yeah for example which kind of destroyed a lot of people's lives And, you know, what better way to kind of take some power back than by like taking full charge, like, you know, being the one to issue subpoenas, yeah, being the one to arrest those who you think are the real criminals. Yeah, I think that's kind of one of the things about this is it's fundamentally a story about powerlessness, I I think. But I I mean, uh, I mean, another thing I'll kind of bring up is kind of how how a lot of this turned from being very, very explicitly racist and anti-Semitic mm-hmm. 
to only kind of sort of explicitly racist and anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. Um, and also keeping some of that stuff in the background because it's not good PR. Yeah. I mean, I think the one thing we talked about is how, you know, really in the 50s and 60s, it was segregation is really the thing that every all of these losers were fighting for. Yeah. You know, that was kind of the main thing. But then once the 70s hit, that was basically a lost cause. Yeah. You know, just you're not going to you're not going to overrule. It's kind of in, in a similar way. It's kind of similar to approaches of anti-gay groups when it was declared uh, the Supreme Court declared that gay marriage was a constitutional right. Right. Where it's like that's basically a losing battle at this point. I don't think we're going to reverse yeah, gay marriage. Yeah, and so they perfect. went on to other things. Mm-hmm. And so did the radical right where it became kind of it like this pushing that stuff down almost out of consciousness, Hmm. you know, the stuff with like tax protest where it became, you know, when you look at tax protest, like I, I don't owe any taxes. That's like real, like not real or whatever. It doesn't on the face of it look racist, but ultimately the initial reasoning was racist. The initial reasoning was I'm being taxed too much to pay for social programs for black people. Right. This explicit PR move, to kind of not be explicitly racist itself, like gets ingrained in their psyche. Yeah. And it, it stops being, I mean, this is something we see with a lot of cult leaders in general and a lot of this stuff where explicit bullshit can become just a core of someone's psyche yeah. to where it's not clear right. at all uh, where the bullshit yeah. begins and the real belief on. and where it ends. I mean, Gail, look at Gail, 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 uh, just look at his life. He's the, father of all this so yeah and uh, also half jewish let's uh yeah. that's one yeah, thing uh, you know that. hashtag yeah. bill gale was jewish yeah. let's get that trending <laughs> um if we still use twitter i would totally i would just spam that shit every day um because fuck yeah everyone should know that oh, yeah. everyone should fucking remember it every day um so yeah so with that this is our last kind of main series episode and see we will see you all back yeah. here yeah. in august But until then, we are Thank you for listening to this episode of None Dare Call It Ordinary. If you would also like to hear our weekly bonus episodes, just become a $5 a month patron over at patreon.com slash none dare call it ordinary. That is also where you'll find any blog posts, pictures, and news updates to go along with our regular series. And you don't even have to be a patron to get access to all that fun stuff. You can also reach us by email at nundarecallitordinary at gmail.com. Lastly, we ask for you to please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever your podcasts are served.